Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marts and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. I am thrilled to have you here, and this is episode number 64. And uh, I'm especially happy to have you here if, in fact, you enjoyed the last two episodes of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. Those would be episodes 62 and 63, but more specifically, it was my it was my two-part series. It was a two-part conversation that I had with my friend and mentor, James Brown. So uh, I was I was personally very, very happy uh, with that conversation. I was uh, terrifically thrilled with those episodes. So uh, I certainly hope that uh, you all enjoyed them as much as I enjoyed doing them. I have gotten some really, really nice feedback over the last couple of weeks, so I definitely know that um, uh, at least a few of you enjoyed it, especially those of you who uh, who reached out to, to let me know that you liked it. But even if I didn't hear from you, I hope you enjoyed it. And if, you, if you're listening to me talk about it right now and you realize you haven't heard episodes 62 and 63, then you're going to want to check those out. However... Uh, you're not going to want to stop listening to this episode. You're probably going to want to listen to this one all the way to the end before you go backwards, because this week I have another outstanding guest who I had an outstanding conversation with. My guest this week is an author, a blogger, and an all-around great gal, and her name is Amanda Headley. I crossed paths with Amanda last year around the fall of 2014, not long after I appeared on Joanna Penn's YouTube show, um, I suspect you know about uh, you should know about that because I uh, I actually played that interview on a on a previous episode uh, not all that long ago. Uh, but either way, uh, Amanda, you know, unbeknownst to me, because again, you know, we didn't know each other, uh, but Amanda, she 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 watched the interview. And uh, and consequently, she had some very very nice things to say uh, about me in the interview that uh, that Joanna did with me that she left in the comments section. Now, at some point, and uh, you'll have to forgive me for forgetting the the chronology here, but at some point, I I checked out Amanda's writing because she writes articles for the website The Sarcastic Muse, and you know it it didn't take. It didn't take me more than a you know a couple articles to to find that Amanda has a really great voice. She has a really strong and clear point of view, and frankly, I agreed with just about everything she had to say. So uh, it was ultimately a no brainer to invite her to, to well to invite her onto the podcast to talk about writing as an author, and you know an author beyond the articles that she writes. For the sarcastic muse, Amanda's working on her first novel, which is it's always a terribly exciting endeavor for any author. It's also scary and nerve-wracking and uh anxiety-filled. 
at least it was for me. But I suspect most uh, most first-time authors fill many, if not most, of those things, and others that I probably didn't think to name. So that said, Amanda, she's working on her first novel, which is very exciting. Her novel, uh, it delves into Native American lore and Lovecraftian horror. She's she's very much uh, inspired by and influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. So we actually spent some time talking about that during our conversation. Uh, as for the novel, she's hoping to have it completed by the end of the year. So I, for one, am very, I'm very much looking forward to that. But here's the thing, though. Once the novel is done... How does Amanda plan on getting her novel out into the world? So uh, this this is another, another, I was going to say this is another important question authors have to ask themselves. I don't know if I stated a previous question authors have to ask themselves. So let me say this. One very important question that any author needs to ask themselves is... What path do you want to take to publication? And because uh, on this on this podcast, on more than one occasion, I've spent time talking about traditional publishing, and I've spent time talking about independent publishing. Uh, I pursued traditional publishing for uh, uh, quite a few years before eventually deciding that that path just didn't feel right. It just, uh, you know, partly because I was having no success in in trying to trying to travel that path. So I eventually tried the path of independent publishing. And I've absolutely loved it, and I have no regrets about it whatsoever. So Amanda, Amanda Headley, being that she's writing her first novel and she's almost done with it, she also uh, has to has to ask this question of herself. And while she doesn't have an answer, she she is she she has she at least has some ideas about what she wants to do. And uh, towards the end of our conversation, we actually go pretty in-depth talking about uh, that question, talking about the, uh, these, two, these two paths, and talking about some of, the, uh, you know, some of the benefits and some of the drawbacks. So um, if you are, in fact, an aspiring author and somebody looking to get published, I suspect you'll very much enjoy that part of our conversation. With regards to the Sarcastic Muse, which is the website that, uh, that Amanda writes for, uh, this is a it's a terrific website for anybody interested in creative writing. Uh, all the articles are written by authors. Amanda, she's not the only author on the website, but all the articles they're written by authors, and they have uh, each of them. There's there's an eclectic background of writing interests, including romance, fantasy, alternative research, adult, contemporary, historical, young adult, and horror. And Amanda, of course, she's in the corner of horror, though that's not what she writes exclusively about. Now, as I mentioned, she's written several articles on the Sarcastic Muse, but on March 11th of this year, 2015, for anybody keeping count, Amanda wrote a lovely article called Where is Your Telescope? And in the article, she examines why writers write. Um, I would encourage you to check out the entire article, but here's an excerpt. As writers, fiction is an integral part of our lives. It is what allows us to escape our mundane or hellish realities by submerging us into worlds we have created. Worlds that are more romantic, satiric, mysterious, adventurous, fantastic, or horrific than our real lives. Yet, from our realities, our fiction is born. Each of us is writing to tell a story that has been influenced by something we have experienced. 
For some, it may have been a song we once heard. Others, it may have been something we learned about in school. And for many, our stories are shaped from personal histories. Fiction exaggerates the realities of our individual situations. In a way, fiction writing is a coping mechanism by helping the author to deal with his or her real-life experiences. Authors write fiction as a means to make a statement and draw awareness to a needed change. Some may say that they're writing fiction because they just want to write a story. I kind of call bull on that. Fiction is written for a reason. There is meaning behind it. Deep down, within every fiction author, there is an honest and burning desire to disseminate a message. The message may be personal, or it may be something experienced by the masses, but the fact remains that there is a reason to this need to communicate that was influenced by something in the writer's reality. Authors don't just write stories to have stories. Authors write stories to bring awareness, to tell of something that is of great importance to them. Fiction is the author's voice. Whether that voice is through humor, wonder, fear, anger, or happiness, the author is highlighting something in reality that needs to be regarded. And again, that was an excerpt from Amanda Headley's article, Where Is Your Telescope?, which you can read. You can read it in its entirety on the Sarcastic Muse at thesarcasticmuse.com. Don't forget to add the word the in there, thesarcasticmuse.com. That'll get you there. Again, it's a very lovely article, uh, and I think uh, all of Amanda's insights are keen and clear, and she's got a just a wonderful and inviting uh, voice you know that, that, that she represents on the page. So, so go ahead and check out uh, more of her writing. Anyway, Amanda and I had a wonderful chat. And frankly, if I can be completely honest with you, it is it's easily one of one of my very favorite conversations that I've that I've ever had on this podcast. So, I think that uh, you guys are going to enjoy it as well. So, if that all sounds good to you, then let's move on with the show. I grew up in a small town named Apollo. Um, it's about an hour east of Pittsburgh. Um, we like to consider ourselves a part of Pittsburgh, but the Pittsburghers don't really because, you know, we're kind of far out. But uh, yeah, but when I generalize, I just say I'm from Pittsburgh, but really my town's Apollo. Um, Is there any sort of a, it, it, does it feel like any sort of like a social class system between Apollo, Apolloans and Pittsburghians? Um, no, really. See, Pittsburgh's a funny, funny city. Um, not that it's a funny city, but it, it's different. Um, cause I've been to pretty much every major city in the United States mm-hmm. and there's a nice, uh, kind of a transition between suburbs to rural life. Uh, not so in Pittsburgh, you have Pittsburgh and then it's rural, rural. There's <laughs> no real big transition from the city to the rural areas. Like there's not a lot of suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, socially, no, because yeah, Pittsburghers are all hicks at heart. So, um, <laughs> No, there's there's no real social class difference between us and you know the downtowners. As well, we that's like good. To call. <laughs> the, the downtowners, 
No, the cool. Dan Tanners. Oh, I, I messed it up. Go we, ahead. We have our own language in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Dan Tanners? Dan Tanners. Am I getting that right? I, I yes, feel like I'm yeah. still messing it up. <laughs> yeah, because uh, in Southern California, there is there is a little bit, depending on which uh, which cities you go to, whether it's from uh, like between, say, Los Angeles to Orange County to mm-hmm. where I live in the Inland Empire, specifically Rancho Cucamonga. There is definitely, um, and it's not, you know, it's not everybody, but I can, I, a couple of years ago, uh, I've never actually, I don't think I've, see, I don't think I've ever actually shared this story publicly, but whatever. It's, <laughs> it's I was at the, years ago, I was at this, I was at a club, a friend of mine, a friend of a friend, he was DJing at this club. So he invited us out and it was out in Orange County, which is basically like a, you know, it's a, it's a beach, beach city. Um, what, what city was it specifically? Um, like Manhattan Beach or something like that. But anyway, Orange County, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it was just, uh, I was hanging out. And so my my buddy who was the, the DJ, you know, he wanted us to go out and try to, like, you know, meet some girls because we were just, like, hanging out, not doing anything. So uh, so I, I found myself uh, briefly, and the, the key word here was probably briefly, uh, <laughs> dancing with a, a young lady. And... Uh, probably just making conversation she asked where I was from and so I figured well we're far enough away I should I won't get specific I'll just give her an idea I guess so I said I'm from uh-huh. I'm from the Inland Empire which is the larger sort of you know it sort of encompasses a handful of cities right you know? so I said I'm from the Inland Empire and I don't think she said another word she just slowly literally turned her back <laughs> on me and started dancing <laughs> with her friend and then I realized oh I think I understand what's happening now I guess this is over and then I and then I walked away and then uh uh, the, so, so yeah, so there, so, so that story is now on the record. I've, that's a great story. <laughs> uh, so, so that's kind of why I asked. I've sort of, I'm sort of used to a certain level of, uh, of, a city elitism in various parts of Southern California. So growing up in a small town, I, I have to imagine that, uh, that affected your writing in some form or fashion. Um, or did uh, it? No, actually, no. What what really affected me is where I lived specifically. Okay. Um, you, you know, it, the whole area. I don't know if it was just me. No, it's not just me because I remember some of my friends growing up would tell me weird stories that would happen in the woods because uh, we kind of lived – I at least lived in the middle of the woods. Uh-huh. Um, and there were just weird things that just always happened. And I'm I'm like, I guess, an INTJ personality. I have to analyze everything. <laughs> I don't want to say I'm a skeptic um, because I do believe weird stuff happens. Sure. Um, but I want to know what it is, and you know, but but really, there's stuff that would happen, and you would hear uh, that you just could never explain, and so that kind of uh, that's how I became obsessed with the macabre. It's just all this creepy, you know. It's like cosmic horror. You can't explain it. It's <laughs> you know, you don't know if it's happening on this plane of the earth aliens ghosts what what it is so you know it's just my imagination would just always start reeling whenever i would hear or hear mm-hmm. someone tell a story or witness something so i i think that shaped me more than what the town actually is unless sure. the town's built on some kind of crazy burial ground that i don't know about <laughs> <laughs> any uh any memories that come to mind about sort of just strange noises or occurrences that <laughs> That uh, you still don't know what was going on? Yeah. it Like, I just remember um, <clears throat> we used to have this screened-in porch. Well, it, my, my parents still have this screened-in porch on their house. And it was before we ever had air conditioning. So some nights we would sleep out on the porch because it was so hot in the house. Mm-hmm. And um, you would hear whispering. 
And one night I remember hearing someone screaming help in the woods. I don't know if someone was really out there and actually <laughs> screaming for help or um, what, but I just, you know, you just lay there terrified and um, we'd have a gravel driveway and you'd hear stuff run up and down the driveway and you couldn't see it. Like the floodlights would come on and there'd be nothing there, but yet you'd hear the gravel moving. So it was just, you know, weird stuff like that. And, you know, I put a lot of that into my stories because it just, it, 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 I, I feel horror authors write from what they fear. Yeah. And oh, yeah. that stuff, when I was a kid, used to scare the crap out of me. So I, I love I, a lot, I use a lot of sound effects in my writing. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty common. Like I know I've I've uh, seen some Stephen King interviews where he's specifically talked about uh, he's very much a scaredy cat and he's very easy to scare. And that uh, that you know, and I think um, and I think probably a lot of readers might be surprised that uh, a writer like Stephen King would 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 uh, would be so scared of things like books and scary stories, uh, scary movies. But mm-hmm. but the truth is, I think as you said. Uh, especially as horror writers, it's that's generally where it comes from. Like we're terrified of shit, and so we, yeah. end up, you know, and and if we write effectively about it, it's because you know that we're we're so scared of it. We have such visceral reactions ourselves. It kind of right. comes out in our writing. Yeah, um, I completely agree. So what else? Uh, what else scares you? For anybody who's hoping to to scare you, <sighs> what scares me? Um, or, or know, rather, what what sort of stuff scares you that ultimately finds its way into your stories? Um, well, I personally am not a fan of spiders, but I don't think I'll write about spiders. <laughs> I, I don't want to say never, but at this point, I'm not writing about spiders. Um, Did you ever see arachnophobia? Yeah, but it was so hokey that I just sat there and oh, laughed. So you were like, um, I, I think I saw it at a young enough age that it kind of scarred me for a while. <laughs> I can watch it now and see that it's silly. But when I saw it as a kid, I was, how old would I have been? I was in like, uh, maybe like the sixth or seventh grade. What age is that? 12, 11, yeah, something? Yeah, And uh, just terrified. I remember at, at one point in the movie, I remember going to the, the concession stand to buy <laughs> snacks, but just to get out. The, I needed like a break. And uh-huh. I came back. I got some bonbons. I never had them before, but I figured I'll just buy those. And then like <laughs> something happened and I like freaked out and I crushed my, my bonbons. So I couldn't even eat them anymore. And then later... Uh, it almost sounds like a like a joke, but I remember this specifically jumping into the row in front of me because I was so scared. It didn't make sense to jump, but like I was like that terrified. And for <laughs> years after that, like I couldn't because um, you know in, in arachnophobia, there's the scene where there's like a woman in the shower and the spider. Oh yeah, and it's coming down. Yeah, I, for for years I couldn't close my eyes in the shower. Like I, I taught <laughs> myself how to how to shampoo my hair with my eyes open. I, uh, I I probably could still do it, but as you can see, I don't have any hair. But if I had to do it, I probably could. But you yeah. need to write that kind of scene. That would be a great scene to write about. <laughs> so yeah, I'm with you on spiders. Uh, uh, but but so so you don't necessarily think you're right about about spiders. So what else? I, I don't know um, if I will write about them, but maybe someday. Um, I you know it, it's weird. It's like I always try to figure out what it is I'm af- I'm afraid of, but I can't. I, I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I know some things that have scared me in the past, but I can't say I'm necessarily afraid of it now. Like, um, demonic possessions, they just piss me off, to be honest. And, <laughs> like, if anything would ever try to possess me, God help it, because I think <laughs> I would go batshit on it. Um, but I, I do remember watching The Exorcist. I had to have been, like, 10, okay. something like that. Um, and we were at a friend's house, and I wasn't supposed to watch it. 
um, came home and ended up telling my dad I watched it. And I swear to God, he did this on purpose. I was laying in bed and my bed was beneath the attic. And I swear he was in there scratching on the attic floor while I was trying to go to bed just to kind of teach me a lesson. Um, did it work? Uh, no, obviously not. Um, because the next day I started writing a story about a girl being possessed by some kind of demon. Um, but it, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I, I get more mad at things than I'm afraid of. <laughs> um, though, you know, more real stuff like serial killers yeah. and stuff like that. That I probably will shy away from because human, humans scare me. Yeah. That's what I'm afraid of is humanity. Yeah, that stuff um, is way more scary to me. Yeah, and that's why I think that's why I write more about death and monsters, um, s- stuff that really, you know, that I, I do personally think that monsters are real. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it, it's not tangible within society right now. People, There's too many people that don't believe in them. So. Right. It, it's safe for me. But uh, yeah, serial killers. I mean, I might write a serial killer so- story someday, but right now I'm a little too afraid to. Yeah, that stuff. Ter- like when I was a kid um, and I'm, I'm I think I'm guess I'm pretty sure I'm a, I'm a I, I'm pretty sure I have a few years on you. I'm, so I don't know exactly how much older I am. But so I grew up in the I was a kid. I grew up as a kid in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was born in 77, but I basically grew up as a kid in the Okay, 80s. you're not that much older than me. Okay. So in uh, so in the mid-80s, I forget the exact year, but <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. He oh, was, yes. He was out and about in Southern California. And so that was – and so it was a national story, but he was basically in our backyard. And it was just mm-hmm. – I remember as a kid, it was the most terrifying thing. And, um, and you know, he was like – he was literally – you know, we, we would watch the news – and, you know, the murders, it just seemed like they were getting closer and closer to us. They were like one in two cities away and like nobody knew where, where where he was or what he was. And you would see like sketches and stuff. And it was just the most terrifying thing to think that there's this crazy guy out there and he's seemingly one or two cities away and he's like killing people. And mm-hmm. and I remember, you know, everybody was scared. And my, my mom was, I mean, my mom, <laughs> she's probably, she's, well, she's she's the biggest scaredy cat I know. So she's actually... <laughs> She's easy to scare too, way, way more than me, and I'm a big scary cat. <laughs> so, um, but you know, so she was. I, actually, I, I I forgot about this, but I'm just remembering it. I remember one night while the Night Stalker was still out and about. I think I'd woken up in the middle of the night and I was like really scared. So I went to my uh, to my parents' room, as kids often do. Yeah. And so I opened my mom's door or my parents' door, and so through the doorway, you know, there's like the hallway light. And, uh, and so out in the hallway, I didn't realize it, but we had this, uh, like a, like a, like a coat rack, I guess. And on the top of the coat rack, there was a hat. So when I opened the door, all my mom saw was basically like a silhouette of like a hat and, you know. She thought it was him. Yeah. And so then I heard her start, you know, like calling for my dad. I could tell she was terrified and I was thinking she was scared of me. I was like, but it's just me. Why is she so scared? (laughs) Then I found out later she, she saw that. Uh, but anyway, so it was it was also the first time I'd heard the term serial killer. I'd never actually heard that oh, term before. Okay. So my mom, you know, because she was, you know, she was she knew that we were terrified. She was like, oh, well, listen, here's what we're going to do. You don't have to worry. He just wants cereal. So <laughs> we're going to put some cereal on the porch. And then that way, if he comes to the house, he'll get his cereal. He'll be fine. And I was a kid. I was like, oh, f- OK, well, wonderful. And then I, I wasn't scared. I slept just fine after that. Now I realize I was a, I was an idiot, but she was doing her job, taking advantage oh. of my idiocy to make me feel better. Um, oh. And I think in a lot of ways, though, I mean, just even remember, I remember just being in the backyard and if it was at nighttime and kind of looking, just thinking like, you know, 
like he could just come around the corner of right. the house because you know and i think a lot of those you know i think that you know that was probably more impactful on me than i probably give it credit for really in terms mm-hmm. of you know the the stuff that i write about um because really in terms of the stuff that i write about as far as uh if, if I'm delving into like horror stories, the stuff that scares me the most is when you take a, a character, you take somebody vulnerable and put them in a really dangerous situation. For me, that's right. the, that's the most scary stuff that, uh, that, you know, that, that I tend to write about. Uh, how right. about you? Yeah. That, uh, t- yeah. Putting them in an extreme situation that you already know as the author, that that person is, not a fan of being in it in the first place. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, if, if your person has arachnophobia, you put them in a pit full of <laughs> spiders. I mean, now just being in a pit's going to scare them, but throw some spiders in. I mean, that's going to pretty much send them over the edge. And then that's, but that's really where the growth comes in for that character. You know, yeah. it's either, you know, they, they die there or, you know, they overcome their fear. Uh, so, so yeah, that's, that's really the key to horror. Yeah, well, writing is putting your characters in those situations. Yeah, and and again, and I like what you said about you know a character kind of growing out of that situation because because there's a lot of horror stories or maybe more horror movies than 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 literature necessarily where where there's a lot of filmmakers where for them the horror is just showing something grotesque or violent right. and killing a bunch of people and then that's the horror. But for me, that stuff doesn't really scare me. Mm-mm. Like if I'm watching a horror movie, like watching somebody like slaughtered like that's not scary to me but right. but maybe everything if, if it's told well everything that leads up to that will be way more scary or, or giving developing this character for me make me care about them and then put them in a situation where it looks like something horrible is going to happen that's way more scary than you know say the final product of something uh something violent happening Right. And and the other thing to add to that, like with, with all the, you know, uh, splatter gore, you know, just laying it all out there viscerally yeah. um, for it all to see, like kind of like my tagline for my writing is imagination is the best tool for fear. I don't want to show you everything. I want your imagination to spin it up because your imagination is going to make something more horrific than anything that I can write down. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's combining that with a character that you have grown attached to, that you you have some kind of concern for, and putting them in that situation where, where you don't know what's happening to them. Um, I, I think that makes for the most epic horror story ever. Um, you know, authors like Lovecraft, that's why I love Lovecraft so much. Um, his writing is really hard to read. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I have to read it two or three times because, you know, like I love Call of Cthulhu. It's my favorite story, but I usually fall asleep reading it because his <laughs> writing just drags on. But you're putting these characters in this cosmically insane situation Um and you're not giving all the details. You're yeah. letting the reader come up with their own imagination of what really is going on. Yeah, um, no, that's that's definitely a way to do it. Like I was, there was um, in a what is it? The old uh, the old Frankenstein movie from a uh, Universal Pictures. Mm-hmm. There's there's the scene where you know Frankenstein he meets the the little girl and then he accidentally throws her into the lake and she drowns. And so I guess in the original version of the movie, you actually saw Frankenstein throw the girl into the water. And I guess, you know, at the time, maybe whether it was the censors or the studios just deciding it was too much. Right. They didn't show it. So you just saw Frankenstein with the girl. Then basically, like, I guess the next scene you see 
the dad, the girl's dad holding the little girl, you know, dead in his arms, but you didn't see the middle. And right. it's actually more terrifying just to it go is. from that. Yep, just to seem to hold the girl. Right. That's what I used to always love about the the older movies, like the Vincent Price movies and that is, you know, the actual horror, the act of the horror occurs off scene. Mm-hmm. The the audience never, ever sees it. Um, you know, like, like Psycho is like the perfect example. You don't actually see, and her the character's name's escaping me now, mm-hmm. but, but the woman, you don't actually see her get stabbed. Right. I mean, you see the blood, you see the shadow. Um, of the knife, you see the curtain fall down, you see her fall out of the tub, but you never actually see her get stabbed. So you don't know if it's superficial, you don't know where she's being stabbed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, I, that's, that, that scene terrified me because, you know, it's like, is she being gutted or is she being stabbed <laughs> in the heart? You know, so. And also, yeah, in Psycho, too, that's, that's, that would be another good example of, you know, up until the moment where she does, you know, get stabbed in the shower. You know, the, you know, Alfred Hitchcock takes the time to develop this character. You kind of know, yeah. you know who she is. You understand her story. You understand mm-hmm. what's at stake for her. So by exactly. the time she's in the shower and she gets stabbed, the the terror isn't just in her getting stabbed. Although that, that I mean, that is scary because, because you know, it's, there's there's not many places during the course of a day where you're more vulnerable than inside the shower. Exactly. So right away, that's already a scary thing, let alone at a at a creepy hotel with a guy who's dressing up as his dead mother. All that's scary by itself. But, you know. <laughs> and I always feel like with, um, whether it's with writers or filmmakers, that, like, if, if uh, you know, like, I feel like, say, somebody, there's, there's, I think there's a lot of storytellers, like, maybe they watch Psycho. Mm-hmm. And then they, they know that the most famous scene in the movie is uh, is when the main character, and I'm, I'm forgetting her name as well. Uh, I think she was played by Vivian Lee. I at least have the actress's name, I think, but yeah. I can't think of her character's name. <laughs> um, and so they see the scene. They know the most famous scene is the movie and w- is when she gets stabbed in the shower and killed in the shower. I guess that's technically a spoiler. I can't imagine somebody oh, doesn't know yeah. that. Oh, yeah, someone has, does not know that. I am sorry. You need to <laughs> start watching horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's got to be some sort of a statute of limitation on spoilers, I think. Yeah, but it's it's culture now, so yeah, if you don't know it, you're not culture. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, yeah. If if you're if if you're the one person listening who hasn't seen Psycho and we actually spoiled it, we I think on on behalf of Amanda and myself, we apologize. But now go Not watch really, it. Why yeah. haven't you watched it at this point? Seriously. Yeah. I won't spoil Jaws for you if I can help it, but oh, I'll try not to help. That's going to be a hard one to not spoil. <laughs> oh, if, if you're a Jaws fan, then we'll talk about that too because I love Jaws. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so as, back, as far as a Psycho goes, like say if you're a storyteller, writer, or aspiring writer, filmmaker, you know, and you see Psycho and you know the most famous in the movie is when, you know, the, the, the main character gets killed in the shower, mm-hmm. then, you know, then very often I feel like they take away the wrong lesson from that. And they're like, oh, well, people love when people get murdered in the shower. So let me, let me, let me murder somebody in some other, you know, vulnerable situation. And that's right. what's going to scare people. And completely missing that that's, it's not scary just for that. It's like no. everything else that made it scary. It's, it's Norman Bates. And the, I mean, he is the true terror out of oh, that. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, his whole, yeah, his whole functionality within the movie, that's, that's the, I find that more terrifying than the shower. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he's, you know, he's, he's creepy and he's scary, but he's also, you know, uh, at least in my viewing of it, just really sympathetic. You don't necessarily, yeah, that's true. You, you don't really, you don't really hate him. I mean, well, I mean, I don't know. You, he's terrifying. You, you, you don't want him to do these scary things, but he's also, you know, Hitchcock. 
very much humanized him. Yeah. I mean, you, you know that the, the way he is, he's had to have some kind of, how do I put this nicely? Messed up childhood. Yeah. Um, you know, no one's, I don't think people are born to be like that. I think right. something within their childhood, the way that they're raised, um, leads them to be like that. What, and it might not be the way they're raised with their parents. It might be whatever kind of social set, setting that they're in, that mm-hmm. they're grown up in, um, that is the influence to that. So, you know, I don't want to blame parents. It's not always the parents. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of outside factors. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, nature versus nurture, all that. Yeah, there was the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski. He was the the mafia uh, contract mm-hmm. killer. And so in his case, he was, um, uh, he was, well, there's a really great documentary, three-part documentary, but the third one is the Iceman and the Psychiatrist. And and so it's it's this sort of FBI psychiatrist guy, I guess. I, I think he works for the FBI. But anyway, he sits down with this contract killer, Richard Kuklinski. He's killed two, three hundred people that he's aware of. Maybe he was being modest. I don't know. Might have been more. Um, But part of the reason he agreed to sit down with the psychiatrist is he was sort of he was in prison. He wasn't going anywhere. And Mm -hmm. he was in his own way. He was very sort of curious about his own nature. Like he knew he knows how he feels and he knows that he killed people. But he was curious that what made him different from other people. So he sat down with the psychiatrist for like. 12, 13 hours. Um, and, the, and, you know, and they condensed it into like an, uh, an hour or so documentary, really fascinating. But at the end of the doc, at the end of the documentary, um, he, he asked the psychiatrist um, basically. So, you know, like, so like, what do you think? Like, what's, what's going on with me? And, uh, and I don't know all the technical terms, so I'll, I'll probably mess that up anyway. But, <laughs> but essentially he told him that, uh, that there was two, two primary things happening with him. On the one hand, and the doctor had a name for it, but again, you know, mm-hmm. it didn't, um, part of his brain uh, doesn't doesn't feel fear, and I guess it's like in maybe like one to two percent of people they have this where they don't feel fear. So you can put them in a situation where you and I would be terrified and unable to to react. For him, there was there was a it didn't bother him. So and so, but then the doctor also said that you know. There's a lot of people who have that, and they go on to do good things. So maybe they mm-hmm. become firemen, they become cops, they become test pilots. They they have this thing they don't feel fear, but they can be productive with it. And I think the other thing was, I think it was he was essentially a, a sociopath, maybe something like that. Okay. So he had yeah. these two things, and again, this this a small percentage of people might have it. So so he had, so he you know won like this backwards lottery of you know didn't feel fear, and he was a bit of a sociopath. But then beyond that, in terms of the nurture side, his parents were extremely abusive. He was oh, he yeah. was he was physically abused. He saw a lot of fighting. There was like a lot of bad stuff. So then, so all these things together, you know, the the uh, his his surroundings were were very unhealthy and and violent and abusive. He he already had this tendency to be a bit of a sociopath. He didn't feel fear. So then, you know, when he added all those things up, you know. He could be in a situation where eventually, you know, he could work for the mafia. They'd pay him to kill somebody. Right. It didn't bother him. It was easy. And, you know, um, so that so that guy and that's well, I, I've talked about this in the past, but he, as much as anybody else, um, was probably the, the the biggest influence on the novel I eventually uh, eventually wrote, which was uh, Inside the Outside. Um, but you're you're working on your first novel. Yes. Uh, which I know from experience is a very. It, it's very exciting. It's also very daunting because, you know, I mean, there's 
it doesn't matter how many short stories you write and how many workshops you sit through. When you sit down to write that first novel, it can be, again, it's exciting. Uh, but for me, it was very daunting and intimidating. I wonder how you're feeling at this point. Um, right now, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, this The story that I'm writing, or the novel that I'm working on now, actually stemmed from a short story um, where everyone who beta read the story was like, oh, no, I want to know more about these characters. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I, I started thinking about it. And last March, I went on a retreat to Vermont. Um, it, it was, it, it was, it's basically a farmhouse you stay in and write all day. Um, and then there are the two owners, uh, they sit down with you every night just to talk about what you're working on and kind of help you to develop. So that whole week, like I just kept thinking about this story and they pretty much told me the same thing when I read the story, the short story, they're like, you have something here. You need to take it to something bigger. Um, and I was always a pantser, you know, just sit down and <laughs> just write, you know, I never yeah. put rhyme or reason to it. Um, and so like, I think it was on a Tuesday, my mind just started to think about it. And I sat down and in three days I outlined the entire story by hand. Like it wow. just, it just spilled out of me um, and hand wrote 90 pages of outline um, in explicit detail in each chapter. So I was, I was very proud of that. And, you know, the, the, uh, the two people that I was working with, they looked at it and they said, you know, you could probably have the whole novel done in three months. And I thought, Oh, okay. You know, I could do that, you know, shoot for a hundred thousand, probably chop it down to 80,000 yeah. words. Yeah. Um, no problem. Um, so, you know, it was all going well and good. I got the first three chapters done and then, you know, life just happened. Um, I, I do have a full-time job, um, that kind of took up a lot of time. Uh, I'm working with, um, a collaborative writing group called the Sarcastic Muse. Um, so we started, we're starting to move towards bringing, bring, making it a business. So that took up a lot of time. That's exciting. Yeah. So it, it's, I just haven't had time to really sit and write it. I have all the bones. I just... Yeah, I haven't had time to write it. So actually, in a couple of weeks here, I'm going back up to Vermont to lock myself in a room, <laughs> turn my unplug myself, and just write with a crazy goal of twenty three thousand words a day. Yeah, well, that well, that's it's a crazy goal, but yeah, you know, go for it, go for it. Why yeah, not? we'll see if I can do it. <laughs> Crazier things have happened. Yeah. Um, but that that's the best thing. Well, yeah, I was gonna. That, uh, I'm cutting myself daunting. off, but that's about the best thing you can do, though, is cutting yourself off from from everything. That's when I've had my most productive writing experiences where I've just completely cut off from basically yeah. everything, the internet, yeah. people, phones, TV, media, just anything. Exactly. And just, just you and the story. Right. And uh, I kind of discovered that by accident, even though, you know, I, I think in a way like, you know, I've, I've heard about writers going up in the mountains to a cabin to write, but uh, a few years back I was, uh, I was on a cruise and I took my laptop with me cause I figured, you know, maybe I'll write or something. Mm -hmm. And so there was some point where I was in my cabin and I was, bored and I didn't feel like walking around so I started writing and I found because I didn't have access to the internet and there was really I couldn't really watch tv and there was nobody around that that I ended up you know writing more even reading too I read way more that week than I'd read before because there was nothing else to, to you know right take my attention away so that's good that's I think that's about the best thing you can do to sort of get a nice a nice head start now beyond the outline have you written any chapters or at this point you just you've You've worked out this very detailed outline. Yeah, I have. I have uh, two chapters done. Um, I also have sort of like a prologue written, mm -hmm. um, but 
it, it's weird. Uh, I originally had planned for this to be a standalone story. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the mentors from the retreat, um, John Risfield, he said, you know, in today's marketing, you have to have a series. You can't just stand. It, it's yeah. hard to be a standalone. It's very hard. You pulled it off. Congratulations. <laughs> um, but it's hard to be a standalone. And, I, you know, I kind of turned my nose up and I'm like, no, I don't want to be like everybody else. Right. Um, so, you know, I left thinking this was a standalone, uh, worked on my prologue in the first two chapters. And then actually a month ago, I had an epiphany on how to make this into a four book series. And actually the prologue, I'm going to pull out and make that a novella that oh, kind awesome. of accompanies the series now. So, uh, so yeah, I guess this break that I've had from writing or working on it was good because it just completely shifted my whole focus, yeah. um, and goal, which it's, I guess now for new emerging writers, it's better to have a series. Cause I think it's like supposedly the fourth or fifth book that you really start to get noticed. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely the way things are trending. And, and yeah. I, I think you and I are probably the same where we were coming up as writers. I didn't, I didn't, I, did, I never thought of, I never thought in terms of series is, that sounded weird. I know that's the right word. That sounded weird. I never, yeah, thought, I I never <laughs> thought in terms of book series. Um, Cause all the books that I read and loved, they were standalone books. Yeah. And, um, and so for me, if there was the the closest thing I had to a series was just finding uh, an author that I loved and then reading all of his or her books. And for me, that was kind of a series. There were different stories, but you know, the same, the same voice, essentially the same sensibilities. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in terms of, um, uh, I guess in terms of marketing and selling books, it is easier to, to sell books. And uh, essentially on the business end, it's easier to, I guess, to earn money if you have a series, you know, particularly right. a series that uh, the people are into. But I'm the same as you. Like, I think, <laughs> especially if it happens organically, like in your case, right. you, you organically kind of worked out a, a four book series. That's the way to do it as opposed to, you know, planning for, it. Yeah. Or even trying to squeeze it out. Like I haven't read my mom read uh she so she read 50 shades of gray mm. and then <laughs> and so i guess she she, she bought all three because she figured you know it, it's a series she'll read it right so she read the first one and then um she liked it enough that uh she tried reading the second one but uh it, it didn't feel like i guess from what she was saying that that it didn't it didn't appear to be covering any new ground and then I don't even think she got to the third book. Oh, and yeah. again, like I haven't read it, so I can't comment on the writing. But based on what she was telling me about it, it sounded like it wasn't really a series. It was more like one story that they, expanded they, over three books. They, they squeezed three story, you know, three books out of it, but maybe each book kind of told essentially the same story. So, right. so yeah, and and I don't, you know, the part of me that. The part of me that's just, you know, I'm, I just want to tell stories, whatever they happen to be. You know, if it's a standalone, I'll write a standalone. Right. And if it doesn't sell as many, I can live with that. But then, you know, the part of me that, you know, I'd like to sell some books. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, may, you know, maybe I can make a series out of this. I don't know. Yeah, that's how I am. You know, I just want to tell my story. And if I make money off of it, great. I mean, yes, I would love for my career to be an author. And yeah. if I can make Stephen King prices off, you know, <laughs> yeah. if I could be like the next Stephen King, I would be thrilled. But, you know, I'm just going to write. And I just hope people like what I have to say. Yeah. I don't, well, I don't know if they'll like it, but I hope they fear it enough that they keep <laughs> buying. <laughs> well, one thing I can tell you since, uh, you know, I've I've got the, the one book under my belt is that I – you know, once 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 the book was published and I, and I put it out into the world, and uh, and w- that by itself was 
as terrifying as any scary movie I probably ever watched is <laughs> putting that book out in the world. Because, you know, if it's just a scary thing of like, what if people hate it? And what if they tell me how much they hate it on the internet or whatever? And I read all this horrible stuff. And, and then I was, you know, I was, I had all these fantasies of like, you know, one star Amazon reviews and people really hating it and me finding like a hole to crawl into. Um, uh, but one thing I found out is, uh, or, or discovered, I should say, is that while not everybody's going to love it, right. and, and I've certainly had people who have either been vocal literally or they've been vocal on their blogs or on the internet or, or whatever, um, there's also going to be people who are going to love it. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the, the biggest lesson I've gotten out of you know, publishing this first book is that you know, not everyone's going to love it. That's fine. Right. The people who do love it, you know, embrace those readers. Don't feel, you know, you don't have to prove anything to the people who didn't love it. It just wasn't their thing. Right. People who loved it, you embrace them. And then, you know, for the next book, they'll probably enjoy that. And then maybe you get a few more readers, embrace them. And over time, two, three, four books down the road, you you have a a very nice readership to where, you know, you can put out a one-off and you've got your readership who loves what you're doing as opposed to, you know, marketing a series because, you know, that's, it's this idea to, to get readers. I mean, that said, my not, my next, my next project, it's, it's a, it's a three, it's a three part series. It's a vampire trilogy. Ooh, um, nice. uh, but like yourself, it actually started out as one novel. Right. And when I, when I finished the first draft of that novel, it was really, really big. It was probably approaching somewhere in the area of 200,000 words or something like that. And that was kind of the goal. Cause I, I had this goal of, you know, writing one of those huge Stephen King tomes that like <laughs> physically you could like, you know, injure a small animal if he dropped it on him. And so I was just wondering, like, can I do that? Like, I didn't even know if I was going to publish this book. I was just wondering, can I tell a story that epic, but still be, you know, make it an engaging story? Mm-hmm. So when I finished the first draft, I was pretty much happy with it. And it was by no means, you know, done or perfect, but you know, it was a first draft. Right. But then it was also really long. And then I started thinking about the pragmatics of actually, or rather the logistics of, you know, publishing this huge book. Yeah. And then logistically, I was thinking this would actually be easier if I broke it up into three parts because it's naturally in, told in three parts anyway. And then that's what I ended up doing is I broke it up into three parts and then revised each part into into its own novel so in that sense, I ended up with a series, but, you know, the my next project is, you know, it's the plan is for that just to be a, a one-off novel. So I'm just sort of, I'm just kind of going by feel. And again, the, the part of me that's, you know, a publisher, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do think about, you know, what I'm, I'm always thinking about what can I do to sell more books? What can I do to market myself? What can right. I do to make people aware of what I'm doing? And it's important to think about that stuff, but as much as I can help it, I try not to let that stuff influence the stories I want to tell. Cause at the end of the day, you just want to tell the best stories you have to tell as well as you can tell them. Yep. And however they come across, whether it's in one book or five, that's how it's going to be. Yeah. Who you are know? some, who are some of your favorite authors? Um, well, Lovecraft is obviously my favorite. Um, you know, I, I love Poe. Um, I'm actually hooked on this new guy named um, Nathan, and I'm going to butcher his last name, um, Ballingrude. Okay. Um, he, he, he's, he writes Lovecraftian. Um, he's, he also writes some suspense. Uh, so I, I'm really liking him. Uh, Margaret Atwood is my queen. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just, I, I just love everything that she puts out. 
um, and Joyce Carol Oates, you know, those two, you know, but yeah, Lovecraft is my favorite, you know, the whole unknowing horror that's out there. It just, I I giggle every time I read it. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask you about uh, Lovecraft. It's HP Lovecraft, if I'm not mistaken. Because I've, you know, I, I know the name, but I've never actually read any of Lovecraft. So I don't even know. I couldn't even tell you what type of stories he writes, but based on what you're telling me, does he do the delves into horror on some? Yeah, level he's horror. Uh, it, it's based, It's cosmic horror. It's 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 a horror of like um, ex. I don't want to call it extraterrestrial, but basically, it's it's extraterrestrial horror mm-hmm. where something comes to Earth. Um, we don't know whether it's friend or foe. Humanity looks at it and determines it to be foe. Is it a monster in humanity's eyes, or is humanity the monster in the monster? Is yeah, is humanity the monster in the monster's eyes? Um, so that's it, it's that whole unknowing. Yeah. You know what? What is this? Is this an enemy? Is it not? Um, and usually, the humans are so afraid of the monster that they portray it as an enemy. Right. Um, so it's. It, it's just the whole I, I, unknowing. Yeah, that, that's that's what he writes about. Um, and if you ever want to get into it, um, he has a like. I think the best story to start with is called Dagon. D a g o n. Okay. It's a it's a quick read, and it really hits exactly what he's all about. Okay, Dagon. I'll check that one out. Yeah. Again, it's a name that uh, more and more I hear it from writers who have been influenced by him, but I've never. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about him, so I'd love to learn more about him and uh, get into his work. Yeah, it, it, it there's a great resurgence in him. I, I've always liked him ever since I was a kid, um, you know, and I stumbled across some short stories. Uh, and but yeah, it's he, he's always been an influence on my life. Um, I like to say I was on the bandwagon before there was a bandwagon. <laughs> um, I just never really talked about it because yeah. no one knew. I'd say Lovecraft and people would look at me like, who the heck's that? Um, so I'm very happy to see that he's gaining in popularity. Um, I wish he had it while he was alive. He, he was relative, he was known, but he wasn't yeah. famous. So you were know. you a big reader as a kid? Oh yeah. I rarely watched TV. I was always reading. Um, uh, back then it was like, well, I, I'm obsessed with Jurassic Park. So I've probably read that a thousand times and, <laughs> you know, the sequel to that. Um, I like dinosaurs. So, you know, there's a great book by Greg Bear called Footprints of Thunder that I loved. Um, but yeah, anything that had monsters, I, I, I'm a monster freak. I love monsters. So pretty much if it had a monster in it or, uh, it dealt, dealt with death, like Garth Nix, um, He's one of the original YA authors, mm-hmm. um, but he writes with a much ma- mature tone, um, and he writes about necromancers, um, okay. which it, it, it's it's a beautiful series. Um, and, I, and I'm not a huge YA fan, um, and but it's I'm obsessed with it, and even to this day I still read it because yeah. it's now, just very well written. I have a vague understanding of necromancers, <laughs> but. Go ahead and explain it to my audience, but technically for me, but for the audience. Uh, Necromancers basically raise the dead and they can bid the dead to do their doing. Okay. Um, In in Garth Nix's series, there's a necromancer who's called an Abhorison, um, but, and that... He, it's a special necromancer who can raise the dead and make it do its bidding and also put the dead back. Um, they, he can traverse into death and, you know, conjure spirits. I don't know if conjure is the right word, but he can pull spirits from uh, the seven gates 
there's seven gates that you supposedly pass through on your way to your final resting place. So he can go into the seven gates and pull out different uh, spirits or go talk to certain spirits. So it's, it's, it's haunting. It's beautiful. That sounds cool. Yeah. Do you have, do you happen to remember, uh, or what, what's the earliest memory you have of reading, uh, a horror story or a monster story? Um, there were these, I don't know if you, cause this would have been with our childhood, scary score stories to tell in the dark. Um, oh man. Sounds I, familiar. I don't know. Al, is his name Alan? I, I can't remember the author's name, which is horrible. But it was three books, and um, they had these horrific illustrations in them. Like, I love them. And if I could ever <laughs> find prints of them, my wall of my office would be covered up all over with them. Um, but they wrote a, there was one story in there that I was absolutely obsessed with called The Wendigo, which was uh, a child-adapted child version of Algernon Blackwood's The Wendigo. Algernon wrote the original Wendigo, and then... Um, the person who put together scary stories to tell the dark kind of, you know, cleaned it up for children. Um, that, uh, and actually that's kind of the story that inspired my novel. Um, because do you know what a Wendigo is? No, I was, I was debating whether or not I wanted to ask, cause I don't want to reveal too much <laughs> ignorance on my part, but. No, no, no problem. <laughs> no, most people don't know what the Wendigo is. So okay. the Wendigo um, is an evil spirit, uh, that was mostly, uh, it, it comes from folklore within, um, the Ojibwe tribe, uh, of Native Americans up near, uh, Minnesota area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, if I'm screwing that up, I'm really sorry to any historian that's listening. Um, <laughs> but in my research, that's what I found. Uh, so, uh, the, the spirit, uh, kind of possesses people who, uh, are, are so corrupt enough that they're going to commit cannibalism when there is a bounty of food around. So, um, you know, kind of like Jeffrey Dahmer, he's going to eat people even right. though he can go to McDonald's. So uh, the spirit possesses the, the person that's committing the cannibalism. And over time, the person morphs into this monster that is constantly hungry. And every time it eats a whole person, the monster grows in size proportionate to that person. So it's constantly hungry. And anytime it eats, it's never sated. So the monster just goes on a rampage through the woods of North America, just eating people and growing bigger and bigger and bigger, constantly wow. hungry. It's so, a, sort of a, almost sort of a, I don't know, sort of very metaphorical. It sounds uh-huh. like. Yeah. So cool. it, I've, I've just always been obsessed with that story. And so, uh, that's what my first novel is about. Um, is it, it kind of delves into the Wendigo mythos. Um, and yes, there is a Wendigo in my story, the monster. So <laughs> well, uh, tell me, well, I mean, you're still working on the book mm-hmm. and I know that, uh, at least I know from, from, from my experience, I, you know, I, 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 I hold a lot of the details pretty close while I'm working on a story. Yep. So with that in mind, you know, tell me about your book is it, with as many details as you're comfortable sharing. <laughs> tell me about your novel that you're working um, on. I'll try. It's going to be brief because uh, it's kind of unique <laughs> <laughs> and taboo. So I don't know how much I want to give away. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, it deals with the main character uh, who he's just he's just a corrupt kid. And he's he's young. He's his corruption started when he was younger. Um I'm trying not to give away details, Um, but he has a fascination with eating things. So we'll just leave it at that. Um, 
And, you know, as he grows, uh, he becomes a very selfish person. Um, I wanted to play up the selfishness because that uh, what people who are possessed by the Wendigo spirit, you know, they're, they're usually chosen because they're a selfish person. Why would you eat a human if you can get food elsewhere? So, uh, so I try to play that up with the character. Um, and then over time, uh, well, there's a, there's a young girl who, um, tries to convince him to be good, as I put that in quotes. Um, <laughs> she, she tries to teach him what the light is. You know, you don't have to be like this. Uh, you don't have to be a selfish person where everything's about you. Um, you need to care about other per- people. Um, so she kind of goes along the adventure with him as he's falling deeper in the darkness, and she keeps continuing trying to pull him out of it. Um, but at some point, something snaps and he needs to make his decision whether he's going to follow the path as a Wendigo or is he going to come back and join her uh, and be a human, basically. That so, sounds great. That yeah. sounds great. That That's definitely a book you should be working on. You also have my, uh, my vote of confidence. You should definitely be writing that story. Oh, thank you. Thank um, you. <laughs> uh, you uh, I don't know if you referenced this or if I just sort of uh, – if I just sort of heard this my, in my own head, but it sounds like you there, um, there was a, a fair amount of research involved in the story you're telling. Would that be? Yeah, actually I've been, it's been a legend. The Wendigo legend has been something that I've been reading about for years. Um, there was a stint that I was kind of like reading a lot about Jeffrey Dahmer because that he was diagnosed with Wendigo psychosis. Oh, interesting. Um, so that, that's the actual name for someone who commits cannibalism is Wendigo psychosis. Um, so I did a lot of research in that area um, because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to make this main character be. Um, you know, what kind of – I didn't want to diagnose him with something, but what kind of traits did I want him to be um, that people could understand? And I don't want to say associate with, but they could they could understand why he was acting the way he was doing and, and they could label it in a way. Um, because, you know, when, when you talk about cannibalism and I'm sure, you know, you, you went through the same thing with your book, it, it, it you're trying to find the nicest way to portray it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, because it, it's, it's, it's very, it's very graphic. And, you know, as soon as people hear it, some people turn off from it, yeah. um, because they think it's so horrible. Um, but you know, in my story, it's horrible. In your story, and I don't want to give away anything in your story, it's not. It was a way for survival. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's just, it, it, it's it's a hard topic. And, you it know, I'm, yeah, I'm I think trying to figure I, out how I'm going to address it. <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly certain. I mean, there's no way that I'll ever be able to, you know, quantify a number. But I'm fairly certain that I've lost a lot of potential readers just based on the the subject matter. Yeah. People who might have actually enjoyed the story, but uh, by the same token, you know, I've ha- I've I've met readers over the years who who said that, you know, they were say they were trepidatious and they probably wouldn't have read it, but maybe somebody somebody that they you know, somebody whose opinion they trusted told them to read it or whatever, and then they read it and then they were glad they did and they found out that, you know, beyond the cannibalism, you know, there's there's a there's a more complex story mm-hmm. about these people and stuff. But you know, I, I I don't doubt for a second that I've lost readers just because they see cannibalism and they have an idea in their head and they they don't even want to uh, pick up the book. Right. Um, 
uh, one thing. So again, so so technically inside the outside, that was it was my it's my first novel, but I actually wrote an uh, an unpublished novel before that, and you know I I haven't looked at it in a long time. I don't have fond things to say about it. Just because it was my first novel, I don't think it was very good. <laughs> but the best thing I can say about it is the process of writing that first novel. Like, I felt like I learned a lot about writing. And so the lessons I, not just writing, but writing a novel, because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I feel like I was able to take some of the lessons that I got from writing that first unpublished novel and apply those lessons to uh, Inside the Outside. So in your experience working on this first novel, mm-hmm. I mean, you went to college, you studied uh, you studied professional writing, you minored mm-hmm. in creative writing and literature. Um, you've done writing workshops, you've written short stories. So you have all this, all this sort of writing background experience. But I wonder if like me, if on top of that, going into a novel, if you've learned things that you didn't know, or you've discovered things that you didn't know that you need to learn. Oh yeah. Every, you know, it doesn't matter how much education, and this is in any field, but specifically with writing, um, it doesn't matter how much education you have. You're always going to learn something new. Always. Um, like, like I was saying earlier about my writing style, I used to be a pantser, um, you know, and, and I was sort of taught that way in college. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they taught us outlining and all that, but then I had a couple t- professors who were free thinkers and they just said, <laughs> just write what your heart desires and don't give anything else, any thoughts. And, you know, it's just, I'm a very organized person and it it stressed me out. And I think that's why I'm a little behind on where I think I should be writing, um, and having published because I just spent so much time on this stuff that I just like kind of threw together and editing's, I hate editing, but I'm not going to go there. (laughs) Um, but, um, you know, I just threw it together and said that was it without putting any thought to it. There was no depth. My characters were flat, um, that, you know, now, uh, almost 10 years after graduating, I've changed my entire writing process. I now plot everything. Um, and it's, it's a much easier process. And, you know, it took me 10 years to learn that. And I know in another 10 years, I'm going to be a completely different person because I'm going to learn something completely new. Um, and that's the best thing about writing is you're always learning. I would find it horribly boring if I wasn't (laughs) learning something new every day. Now for, uh, for the listeners who might not know what you're referring to when you, when you talk about a writer who is a pantser as versus say an outliner, uh, how would you explain mm-hmm. that to, to somebody? Uh, a pantser is someone who just gets that kernel of thought that, that little idea in their head and they just sit down and, you know, just put fingers to the keyboard and just type and you just, you know, you just let the story come. Um, you you don't sit down and you don't outline, you know, in this chapter, I want this to happen. In this mm-hmm. chapter, I want that to happen. Um, I want this character have this type of characteristics. I want this character to be that. Um, you know, you, you're just sitting down and writing. And some people can do that amazingly. Yeah. Um, I, I have one friend who is, I don't know how she does it. She just sits down and it just comes out and it's cohesive and beautiful. <laughs> and she gets her stuff done quickly. Um but, you know, I, I, I'm an analyst, you know, I have to analyze everything and, you know, I have to figure out what is, I need structure yeah. that that's the bare bones of it. So that's, that's, that's what an outliner is or a plotter, you know, that you hear of pantser versus plotter, pantser versus outliner. Yeah. Um, I, I need that organization. Um, you know, I, I, I have a three ring binder that's like, 
over 200 pages full of plot and character development. <laughs> I finally bought Scrivener and now all of that is in there so that I don't have to carry around a notebook. <laughs> but um, it, it's just, you know, that that's what the difference is. Pantsers can sit down and just spew out this amazing manuscript of plotters. Yeah. We labor over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pants are they write by the seat of their pants? But, yeah, yeah. But I'm true. like I'm like you though. I'm I I love to outline. I love to plot. I love to because for me, uh, and this that this actually I'll let this be my next question in a second. But I you know when it comes to 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 character versus plot, you know they're both important. But I think a lot of writers fall into one or the other primarily. Yeah. So for me, I'm way more about the story and the plot. And so I like I like to outline the story, figure out what's gonna happen. I like to know the ending. I like to right. work out all the various arcs leading up to that ending. And then for me, within within the story that I'm plotting, I figure out who the characters are because I, I figure out, well, what characters do I need to tell this story? And then once I figure once I figure that out, then I'll develop those characters. Whereas there's a lot of writers, um, who they start with the character and they, they write this character and they develop, they develop this character. And then this character, you know, essentially takes them into the story that, uh, that they're eventually going to be a part of. Mm-hmm. So would you say that you fall into one or the other primarily? That's a, you know what? I honestly don't know. And like, I've been writing for, it feels like eons and I still don't know what, what I fall into because like when I get an idea, it, the character and the plot hits at the same time. Yeah. And you know, my character's telling me what they want to have happen in the plot. Um, and my plot's telling me, okay, this character needs to do this. It's like, it's, it's at the same time for me. Um, and that's probably why sometimes I go insane and sit in the corner and cry and I'm like, <laughs> shut up one at a time, just shut up. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think, I think I vary by story. Sure. Um, when I was writing Parallax, which was my first published story, that was plot driven because um, I did start with the plot on that. I was just learning how to cohesively write. You know, I knew how to write before, but that's when I was going through the education of writing. Um, I, I'm writing a, a short story now for a sampler that's coming out in the Sarcastic Muse. And that one, you know, the character kind of popped up first before the plot. Um, with the novel, it's both at the same time. Um, and actually for all four books in this series, uh, it's all, you know, it's all hitting at the same time. So it's, I'm weird. I just, (laughs) (laughs) well, that's okay. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Again, for me, you know, I, like I said, I'll, you know, once I like, you know, like in, in a micro sense, you know, I'll, I'll see a scene first. I'll have an idea for a scene, some sort of dramatic scene. And then within that scene, it sort of becomes clear to me what, how many characters I need or kind of what sort of characters need to be there. Mm-hmm. But then once I get into those characters, then I'll really dive in and, de- you know, develop them. And, you know, um, they, they, they sort of take on a life of their own. In fact, that's probably, you know, in terms of character, if I was going to make a distinction, I'm probably more of a pantser. Like I won't plot. Oh, I don't, I don't, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll discover a character on the page all day mm-hmm. long. But as I discover that character, they still exist within the structure of this plot. That I've that I've worked out. Um, so in that way, and I'm glad we're having this conversation because I never thought about it before. <laughs> I guess in that way. So story wise, I'm definitely a, a plotter, but character wise, and you know, even if I have you know a handful of, uh, for actually, but you know, I even take it back. Like with my my vampire trilogy that's going to be coming out soon. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I those characters. Well, it eventually became this really, really personal story, but not on purpose because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know who these characters were because I had this story I wanted to tell, but I didn't know anything about these characters. Right. So when I felt like I had like a, a vacuum of space to fill with these characters. I just loaded it with all just a whole bunch of personal experiences. And so these characters, they love all the same things I love. They've had all my personal experiences. Mm-hmm. Some of them are like, um, r- like really personal that somebody's going to read it and they're going to be like, wasn't I there? I could have sworn that happened to me. It's like you were there, but I, I gave it to my characters instead. <laughs> um, and so, 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 you know, so sometimes I can create a character from scratch, but if I'm in a vacuum, yeah. I just, you know, my, my trick is generally just, you know, just tell a personal story and change the names, and then that becomes the uh, the character. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Now, in terms of uh, so so uh, you were you were recently published in somewhere in the middle of eternity. Yes. And is this an anthology? If I'm not yes. mistaken. Yep. This is an anthology. Uh, it contains sci-fi, fantasy, and paranormal stories. Um, so uh, yeah, it's 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 a group of us. We 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 pretty much knew each other. Um, and it was uh, kind of pulled together by an, a sci-fi and paranormal author, Phil Jinta. Um, and, you know, he just put out a call and I actually let him read Parallax. Parallax has been, oh my God, I've been working on that story for 10 years. It's such a short <laughs> story, but it has like been the bane of my existence because I could never just get it right. And I still am not happy with it, yeah. even though it's published. You know, it came out in print and I looked at it and went, oh, I want to change that and I want to rewrite that. And, you know, I'm just still not happy with it. But, uh, yeah, he read it years ago and then he got the idea of having an anthology and said, I want this story in the anthology. And I'm like, okay, that's awesome. Now, was this uh, the same group that uh, brings together the creative muse Mm. or the sarcastic muse? muse. No, that's actually a different group. Um, the sarcastic muse, um, we actually started, uh, in Clarksville, Tennessee. It it was three of us, um, who it's such a long story, but it's, it's really funny how we all met. Um, I moved to Nashville, uh, in the winter of 2009 and then moved up to Clarksville, which was an hour North of Nashville. And I was just so bored. Um, and I found a writer's group, joined the writer's group. And, uh, there was a girl sitting across the table from me and I'm looking at her and I'm like, why do you look so familiar? Um, and her name was, uh, Kirsten Blackader. And, um, here her and I went to Kutztown university together, <laughs> um, and we're in the same major. Uh, so it was funny how we met there. Um, and then Robin LaRue was in the book club as well, or the writing group as well. And we just all connected. Um, and so we're like, let's just start a blog and just talk about writing. Um, and then, uh, Robin had a friend named Michelle Mueller, um, who is this brilliant, brilliant young girl who, um, her, her writing is very lyrical. She has a gift that I've never seen before. And, um, she's a fantastic editor. So we brought her on to teach about editing and, you know, uh, just her, her style of writing. Um, and then we've also brought on, um, Chris Musgraves, who's a, who's a horror author as well. And I call him a flash fiction God. Um, (laughs) so, you know, that, that's sort of how we got our start and formed. Um, but yeah, the sarcastic muse, uh, we just want to teach about writing. There's no one way to teach about writing. Writing is unique to everybody. Um, so this is just the stuff we've picked up over the years, the stuff we've heard, you know, 
Um, I like focusing on, uh, like I just did a huge archetype series um, about something that I think writers should think about when writing are different archetypes, um, you know, plot, character archetypes, settings, that kind of stuff. Um, so we just, we just try to give a lot of writing information. Um, and now we're moving on to, to publishing. Um, hopefully we might have some anthologies in the future, but yeah, that the sarcastic muse is completely separate from, um, the somewhere in the middle of an eternity anthology. I completely deviated from your no, <laughs> original no, no, that, question. I'm sorry. <laughs> don't, no, don't worry. Cause I was going to talk about both anyways. That's cool. I don't mind at all. So, uh, so somewhere in the middle of eternity, just to, to, to give it, it's, a uh, it's uh, it's due during this conversation. It was published by Firebringer Press, yes. uh, not that long ago, just July fourth, two thousand and fourteen. Now, um, is this is, is Firebringer Press? As far as you know, are they relatively new? Do they have other books that I'm not aware of? Uh, no, they've been around for a while. Um, Steve Wilson um, is the owner and creator of Firebringer Press. He has um, several of his no- novels um, published through there. Oh, um, cool. So does Lance Woods, and Phil Junta has all of his novels published through there um so yeah it's 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 they're they're very they they used to be strictly sci-fi i believe but now um uh, i was talking to steve about you know what do you want to do horror and he was (laughs) was interested um i know with paranormal phil's books are paranormal so uh, there's that paranormal genre so um it's it's an up-and-coming press that's great. So That's really cool. And it's exciting, I imagine, for you to, to be a part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's been an int- – I, I, I never foresaw any of this, so I'm just sitting <laughs> smiling like, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, back to the sarcastic muse because I really did want to talk about that anyway, so I don't mind you uh, <laughs> getting into it. Uh, so are you all uh, regionally? Are you all in the same area, or are you guys just spread out? We're all over the world. I'm in Pennsylvania. Kirsten is in um, Wyoming. Uh, Robin is in Texas. Uh, Michelle's in Estonia, and Chris is in the UK. <laughs> wow! So that's we're, awesome. We're very, you know, we're we're. That's what I like about us is we're very varied. We're all different genres, mm-hmm. um, and we're in all different locations across the world, and we all have our own opinions and thoughts about everything. Yeah. So we're not a one-stop shop when you come to our website to read about what we're talking about. It's, it's going to be different. You know, it's going to be all of our own opinions and thoughts. Yeah, and it's a great website, the Sarcastic Muse. What's uh, what's the uh, the URL, by the way? Uh, it's the thesarcasticmuse.com. Okay. Uh, yeah, for anybody listening who's interested in, in in writing, creative writing, learning different elements of it. Uh, it really is a, ter- a terrific website. You all are, you know, really great contributors. I've, I've, uh, I've been to it, you know, more than once. I've read several of uh, the, the various articles. You guys should be very proud of the work you're doing on there. It's really cool. Thank you, thank you. Yes, I, we have. We, we, I, I'm, I'm in love with all these writers that you know we've made this group because they're extremely talented, and you know I just love working with them because they're just brilliant people. And honestly, the best thing you can do as a as a writer is just hang out with other writers, whether it's yep. in person or you know via the internet. Just just hang out, network, just be in conversations with other writers, and it's just you just you know you just get better. Yeah, I mean, it, it, probably I I really didn't start collaborating and you know being social with other writers until probably about five years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed like how much I've changed and it's, it's skyrocketed. Like Mm -hmm. I am a totally different person and I, I like to think that I'm better 
than what I was five years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm happier too. That's, That's awesome. You know, they, I, I, I was, you know, miserable with my writing until I started getting more involved with the sarcastic muse. And, you know, they, they really helped me a lot, you know, and they've made me grow and I just love them for it. Yeah. Cause even this podcast, my, you know, the, the Martin Lestrap show podcast hour, my, my uh, initial idea with it was I wanted to, uh, to sort of, you know, to get into this audio medium and uh, have a, basically have an outlet to talk about writing and publishing Mm-hmm. But I also wanted to to have conversations with with other authors. So, like in a very selfish way, this show gives me an excuse to you know track writers like yourself down and just and just talk about writing because it's you know because uh, as you well know as a writer, it's it's fun to talk about writing, but you know not you don't bump into a lot of writers just kind of walking out on the street. Right, right. That's true. And yeah, I I absolutely love your podcast, and I love when you deviate into <laughs> comics. Um, so I will say I'm a Harley Quinn fan and a Deadpool fan. So sorry, no Batman or Superman for me. (laughs) That's okay. Well, I'm going to be, I, I'm, 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 well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I don't want to go over that. That's very nice of you to say. Uh, and there's going to be a much more comic book talk, uh, coming in the future because I'm more and more, I'm getting into reading more comics and talking more about comics. And, um, and that's the other thing about the podcast is it's sort of, it's, I, I sort of mean for it to be a kind of an audio representation of, of my head. So, so kind of wherever <laughs> my head is, the podcast will go in that direction. So right now I'm That's reading a awesome. lot of comics and it's kind of going in that direction. Uh, the sarcastic well, muse. I love the name. Where did that actually come from? Or does uh, it, does it mean anything? I have no idea. Yeah. Well, it, it, Robin just kind of came up with it the one day, um, because I think we were just all being snarky about something. Um, <laughs> And then she, you know, she had talked about starting a blog and then we were like, oh, what are we going to call it? And then one day she's like, let's call it the Sarcastic Muse. And we're like, oh, okay, that sounds good. (laughs) Um, Because sometimes we do get very sarcastic and witty. So, um, so yeah, just kind of stuck. And, you know, we all have nicknames for each other, which I am not allowed to say, (laughs) but I can say that I am the macabre muse. Um, (laughs) But yes, I'm not allowed to divulge any other muses' code names. Uh, but yeah, Fair it's just enough. you know that it's I to, to say we're muses. You know, sometimes it's kind of like egotistical. But you know, <laughs> it's just we're we're writing about the craft, and yeah. we're hoping to inspire people. And you know, the muses did it, it inspire. That is what a muse is. Yeah. It's it's this um, this mythical being who brought inspiration, whether it was through music, poetry, writing. Um, that's, that's what a muse is. And that's what we hope to, to bring. Um, we want to educate people and we want to inspire them to write because it's a beautiful craft. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think you, you guys are absolutely doing that. Like I said, I'll repeat myself, but I don't mind. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a terrific website and, and everything you're describing, I think you guys are accomplishing all of those things. And, uh, everybody involved in the website should be very proud of what you're doing and, and keep keep doing it because I know that there's, there's a lot of writers who can benefit from it. Well, we appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> now, uh, before we, we wrap up, um, let's talk just a little bit more about your novel in progress. Again, you don't have mm-hmm. to give any details because, again, sure. I know how, how tricky <laughs> that can be. But in terms of uh, of the process, do you have do you have any personal goals as to when you'd like to see it done or when you think it can be done? Yeah, if if my life schedule continues on track, I would like to have the first draft um, done by December first, um, and then off to editing. Um, 
maybe I'll do the, um, I think it was Stephen King who said, just put it away for six weeks and look at it again. Yeah. Um, so I might just do that before sending it off to the editor, because if I do this 2,300 or 23,000 words in three days mashup, I, this thing's going to be awful. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think that's probably what I'm going to do. Try to at least have it, have the first draft done, put it away for six weeks, revisit it. Um, so at least by the first of the year, I would want something out yeah. to my editors and, and maybe a beta reader or two. Um, and then, um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm toying about what to do publishing wise. Do I want to self publish? Do I want to market it to a small press or do I want to find yeah. an agent? Um, that was actually my next I'm, question. I'm, I'm, so go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I'm going to more deviate to, um, either self publishing it or, um, marketing it to a yeah. smaller press. Um, just because, you know, I, I love the indie movement. Yeah. I, I'm in love with what's going on. Um, and I kind of want to be a yeah, part of yeah, that. Yeah, I'm totally biased, but I think that's, that's kind of the way to go at this point. I mean, I, obviously I'm biased. I, I'm an independent, independent publisher and author, but you know, the, the, uh, I, 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 I'm thrilled to be a part of the, uh, indie publishing movement and, really something of a revolution because the the mm-hmm. whole landscape is changing and publishing pretty much right before our eyes. And, um, and, you know, when I was coming out of college, the idea of, you know, I, it's been very much massaged into my brain is that, you know, you write mm-hmm. a, write a book, get an agent, they get you a book deal. And then, you know, you right. start a career. So I was like, all right, I guess that's what you do. And I hit my head against that wall for years and years. I was like, well, fuck, I can't even get an agent. And this is, getting an agent seems harder than actually getting a book deal. And who knows if I'm going to get a book deal. Right. And then, and then eventually it's like, well, I can keep hitting my head against this wall or I can just say, I, I just want people to read my book. I don't care how they get it. And begrudgingly, yeah. I wasn't excited about it, but I did it because I just want people to read my book. <laughs> and then once I did it, you know, it was the best, it was the best decision I could have made for my writing career. And I have no regrets. And, and the and the and the best part for me now, and you'll learn this, especially if you decide to go in this direction, is that, you know, like when I wrote Inside the Outside, there was always this sort of underlying anxiety of, is anybody going to read this? Is this ever going to get published? Yeah. Is this am I am I just spinning my wheels, but nothing's going to happen? But now that I now that I know what I'm doing, and I know that I'm an independent publisher, and I can put out anything that I want. Now, when I write, it's with so much more excitement and exuberance as, you know, I can't wait to finish this because when it's done, it's going to get published and it's going to go out in the world. And, and especially now that I have, you know, I, I basically have an audience that's, that's still growing. That's even more exciting. And, and, you know, and I can't wait for you to get to that point in your career where, you know, where you have an audience of readers and they love what you're doing. And now you're writing stories. And it's like, I can't wait to finish this because... I know there's people out there and I, and they're going to read it. And it becomes this really exciting thing where I don't, you know, at least for me, I can't speak for other writers. For me, that wouldn't exist without independent publishing. Right. Yep. I completely agree with everything you said. Um, and that, that, that excites me that you, that you just said all that because um, that kind of made me feel better about, you know, my decision of leaning more towards being an indie yeah. author. And, and two, there was, you know, for, uh, and I'm sure you know this as well as anybody that uh, for the longest time there was definitely a very tangible stigma, mm-hmm. and you know to a, to a certain degree it still exists, but it really more and more seemingly I think it really only exists with either if it exists with an author, it's probably an author who came up and established their career 
during a time when, you mm-hmm. know, when that's, that's just what you did. You got an agent and then, you know, the publisher, or, you know, it might exist in a, in a small, in, in a, in a smaller group of writers who, you know, for them, there's, there's a certain amount of validation to having an agent right. and a publisher validate you by publishing your work. And, you know, and, and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't steer anybody away from trying, you know, like if you said that you were going to try it, oh, yeah. I would absolutely encourage you. But, you know, I know from my experience and from a lot of the author, uh, you know, friends I've made over the years, like, you know, like Joanna Penn, who I know you've, you know, you know mm-hmm. that it just seems like it's, you know, when, once you do it, it's like, why would you do it any other way? It just makes so much sense. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's like if you do shop it to an agent um, and you get a book deal, it's still going to be another two or three yeah. years before it comes yeah. out. And, and in a lot of cases, I've heard, you know, I've heard stories about authors who they don't even get to pick the title of their book. You know, right. Oh, I know. That's a horror story in and of you know, itself. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, by the time the book comes out and then, you know, uh, then, then you know, you uh, whatever whatever royalties you collect – it's generally oh, a small yeah. percentage, and even then, you only get like yeah, 10, 15, yeah. 25 percent, maybe, it's, maybe right. that much, you know. And that's after yep. they recoup their expenses. So again, you like look at all this stuff, and it's like, well, you know, I, I, I again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk anybody out of doing it, but I would very mm-hmm. much encourage anybody who is interested to, you know, don't, don't be afraid to publish independently because I mean, you know, it's at this point, it's basically, a, it's basically an even playing field now, like. Yep, so it's it not is. like, you know, if you publish with a traditional publisher, that you have any sort of leg up. Because um, over the years, I've, you know, one of the cool things about publishing inside the outside is once you become a published author, it starts to open a lot of doors for you. And I start I started getting opportunities that I that I wouldn't have got before, whether it was to do speaking oh, engagements okay. or book signings or I've spoken at a a couple of times at uh, to in, in prisons, which is cool, which, you know, nobody... They oh, wouldn't have asked cool. me to do that otherwise or go into high, just really cool stuff. But then beyond that, just meeting other authors or being able to reach out to another author. And, you know, because I'm an author, you know, we're, they, they treat me like we're in the same club, even if they're, you know, traditionally right. published or they have an agent. I, I've, I've not yet experienced meeting an author who published traditionally who, you know, who's basically, they, nobody's been an asshole to me. You know, we, they, oh, that's you know, we're, good we to all hear. sort of, you know, exist sort of in the same plane. And so one of the things that I've learned from speaking to a lot of traditionally published published authors is that especially now more than ever, you know, you can get the agent and you can get the the traditional publisher, but once the book is out, it's still on your shoulders to sell the book. And you're doing all mm-hmm. the same work that an indie author is doing, except you're getting less money because the indie author, you know, they're they're publishing their own work. You're you're cutting right. a huge you know uh, percentage of it to to the publisher and the agent and maybe hire publicists like all this stuff, and you know uh, again I you know I'll repeat myself again because that seems to be the theme for me right now. I would <laughs> never talk anybody out of doing it if that's what they wanted to do, but I would very much encourage anybody who is interested like yourself to to take the independent route because I you know I can speak from my own experience right. and from many authors I've met over the years. It's just you know it's just no regret. It's the best thing I could have done for myself. Yeah. And, and in watching the, the independent author trends, um, and the resources that are available Mm -hmm. now, as opposed to two years ago, 
Um, you know, there, there's companies like 99 designs and, you know, I don't want to start plugging a whole <laughs> bunch of, uh, places, but you know, it's, you can now shop and, you know, go get your book cover for a moderate yeah. price. And, you know, you can find, uh, editors, I've found editors more readily available and, and not as high price because they're getting yeah. more work um, because of the independent movement. Um, so I, I kind of think it's easier it really today. Is. And and next year it's going to be even easier. That's the thing. Um, there's, there's something new that's going to come along to make an independent publishing lifestyle, you know, more because it, it is stressful to have to manage and market and, you know, be creative at the same time. Yeah. Um, well, so. I'll tell you what, Amanda. I could uh, I could easily sit here and chat with you for the next <laughs> couple of hours. This has been fun, um, but I figure this won't be our last time talking. I'd, I'd love to have you back on the show. I hope not. <laughs> uh, again, whether it's whether it's when your next or I guess when your when your first novel comes out or before that, either way, we'll definitely have you back on to to chat some more. Because you know, I kind of right. you know, for as good as this conversation was, I feel like we barely even you know uh, barely even skimmed the surface of all the things that you know we could easily have gotten into in terms of you know writing and storytelling and horror and blogging and you know any number of uh, any number of topics yep there's a lot of topics so, uh, <laughs> so i will uh, officially say thank you so much for being on the show and i very much look forward to having you back on thank you and i appreciate you having me on my pleasure Well, there you have it, Amanda Headley. I told you we had a great conversation, so uh, I'd say the proof is in the pudding. I really enjoy talking to Amanda, so I sincerely look forward to having her back on the show sometime soon. As I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, and actually Amanda talked about this herself, she's currently working on her first novel. Now, because her novel's not done yet, at the very least, not as of as of this recording, her novel's not done yet. Uh, so in the meantime, if you want to sample Amanda's fiction, she has a short story in the anthology Somewhere in the Middle of Eternity, which was published by Firebringer Press in July 2014. It's available on Amazon.com, so, you know, go go get yourself a copy. But before you do, since you're going to shop on Amazon.com anyway... I'd encourage you to first go through the official website of this podcast, martinlestrapshow.com. Uh, go to the po- go, go to the website, and then once you're there at martinlestrapshow.com, click on the shop page. You're going to see an Amazon banner. Click on that banner. It's going to take you to Amazon. And then once you're there, go ahead and get yourself a copy of Somewhere in the Middle of Eternity, which features a short story by Amanda Headley. And because you bought that book on Amazon through my website, martinlestrapshow.com, Amazon's going to kick back a few pennies our way, which we here at the podcast, are we take those pennies, reinvest them into the show, and it allows us to make this show as good as we can possibly make it for you, which is what we strive to do week after week after week. You can also follow Amanda on Twitter. So you can uh, you can find her at Amanda Headley. That's A M A N D A H E A D L E E at Amanda Headley. Go check her out on Twitter. You can also find her on her personal blog, which you'll find at amandaheadley.com. Now, for those of you who uh, 
uh, especially if you're new to the podcast, let's say you're you're fans of Amanda or friends with her who just wanted to check out the conversation. Uh, my hope is that you enjoyed your stay here, you liked the podcast, and that uh, you'll be interested in sticking around and listening to other episodes. If that's the case, I would recommend subscribing to the show on iTunes, which is completely free, and it just makes your life a whole lot easier because you can subscribe on iTunes, and then every week a new episode is going to drop into your iTunes list. On, you, know, you can listen to it on your smartphone, your iPad, your computer, uh, or anywhere that you, that you listen to podcasts or music in general from iTunes. Uh, that's where it's going to be. Super easy, super convenient. Uh, subscribe to the show, and you never have to think about it again. It's just going to appear every week like magic. Poof. That's nice, right? Also, uh, while you're on iTunes subscribing to the show, uh, I hope you'll take a moment to, to leave a review. Because uh, reviews uh, reviews in general of anything are, are a great deal of help to, to anybody doing anything. But in particular, you know, for, for folks looking to uh, discover uh, this podcast, but maybe they don't know it exists, uh, having some reviews helps me out. So uh, if you're on iTunes, go ahead and leave a review. I'd appreciate it a great deal. If you're not an iTunes listener, you can also check out the show on Stitcher Radio, which you'll find at stitcher.com. It's also free, so, you know, it's just another option. Go to Stitcher, find the show, just look it up in the search bar if you can't find it. Press play. Uh, all 64 episodes of the of the podcast are available. Uh, and all future episodes will be available on stitcher.com. And, of course, there's always the old-fashioned way of listening to the show on the official website, martinlestrapshow.com. So in general, what I'm trying to tell you is you have options. And that's always a good thing. Anyway, I want to thank all of you for joining me on the podcast this week. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Amanda Headley. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. So until next time, I will see you on the other side.